Uh, we have been in a, in a series through the little book of Haggai, just a, a short series through the book of Haggai, uh, building up God's house, because Haggai is a, is a small prophetic book, two chapters, that um, focuses on the Lord stirring th- his people that he has returned from Babylonian captivity back to Jerusalem a few hundred years before Christ will be born, and it's to rebuild the temple there in Jerusalem. The temple, ultimately, that Jesus himself will come to. Got to get this thing started. So God has sent his people. He has provided for them. He He has lined up the resources. And he is stirring the people to join in what he is doing through the course of history. And there's some parallels that we have been bringing from that temple building to today temple building. And by temple building, I don't mean a physical building necessarily, but I mean that which goes into the ministry of a church together because God has said in the book of First Corinthians, God has said in Ephesians chapter 2 that his church is his temple. That even a local church in a particular locality, city, town, and neighborhood is a temple. And there, God is present in the presence of his people. And we experience his presence together. And others can experience that presence of God with us in a particular way in his church, which he calls temple. And so we are called to build up the temple that this house is grown by that which each one supplies and provides and participates in. That I've made the uh, comparison then that in Matthew 28, our, our commission that the Lord gives us to make disciples by going to them, by bringing them into God's family, by building them up in faith and in following Jesus, that, that these things are a temple-building commission. That all of that, the going to, the bringing in, the building up, the building up of those within the temple is building up the temple of God where his presence is among his people. So we are in a temple building. So there's something that, those those things that stirred God's people in that temple, there's something for us to learn out of how God stirs his people as well. Things they needed to know, we need to know. That's a big deal. It's a project. It's a lot of work. It's not unlike our church has taken a physical building project to consider, is this something that we need to set before us to do? And um, when you think about a big project like that, you, it, it, it takes some, some analysis. It takes some consideration. It takes some decisions. Now, there's things you're involved in right now. There's things you're busy about right now. I want you to think of something that takes a lot of your attention. It takes a lot of your energy. It takes a lot of your focus right now. I spend a lot of my energy, my time, my focus working at this right now, trying to fix something, trying to resolve something, trying to get through some trouble maybe, trying to achieve something. Why do you do that thing? To put it more gently, why do you do that which you give a lot of your time and attention to? Why do you do that? There's a lot of reasons that we do the things that we do, aren't there? It might be because I think this will make me happy. I think this is where I'll find fulfillment. It might be that this is the right thing to do. I do this thing because it's the right thing to do. It's what I should do. It's what I'm supposed to do. Maybe it's what somebody else 
thinks I should do. Maybe I think I will earn somebody's approval or I'll earn the favor, the affirmation of others if I do these things. Maybe if I follow this course, if I continue this trail, I'm going to gain financially money. I'm going to get recognition. I'm going to get status in the eyes of others. Others will like me. They'll want me around. Now I want you to think again. Some of those things you do that maybe you don't think it's that much. Some, some place of service. Some place of giving yourself away for the sake of others. Some participation in discipling, in temple building, in going to another, in helping bring somebody into God's family, in helping build somebody up in faith in Jesus, in following Jesus. Why do you do that? Why do you disciple? Why would you temple build? Why would you give your time, your treasure, your, your energy into, is it really going to make any difference? Well, there's some reasons that God has been giving us through the book of Haggai. Haggai's first message in a series of four was, we do this because we want blessing in God's purposes, not the futility following our own self-directed ways. We want God's blessing, not our own futility. We want what we do to matter for something. We want God's blessing in it. Reason number two is, it might seem like a little now, but God is going to take this and use it. Laying the foundation of that temple, it looked like nothing compared to what they remembered before, and yet God said the glory of this little thing is going to be far greater than the glory of the former temple. God himself and the person of Jesus is going to show up there. And he does that. God himself and the person of Jesus by his spirit shows up in the midst of what you do for his glory. Message number three, the point was we don't do this to earn God's favor. We don't do this to earn God's approval. We do this because we want to be a part of what God is doing and in his blessing. We do it in anticipation of what God has said he's going to do in the future. He says, I will bless you. That's what's ahead. The past there has been trouble, but I will bless you. And we lean toward that even today, even before we've yet quite seen it. Lastly, we want to participate in something. You want to do something that has some significance. You want to participate in something that matters, don't you? Something that's going to outlast you. And there aren't so many things that will outlast ourselves. Not that many things that we can do that will truly outlast us for a considerable length of time. Even think around you in industry. One example I gave, first hour, was, okay, Ford Motor Company. They can still look back to Henry Ford. Henry Ford started something that continues. And whether that's a good thing or not depends on how you feel about Ford, right? But at least they can look back to the heritage and the, and the initial, and they, they started with the Model A and the Model T, and, and there was this assembly line thing, and you could have whatever color you wanted as long as it was black. And, and out of that grew the car industry that we have today. Ford did something that has lasted considerably beyond him, although it will fail. But you can't always say that, even about car makers. Ask Mr. Edsel, Mr. Packard. Mr. Plymouth or Mr. Oldsmobile, right? Though it doesn't always last. It doesn't always continue. But the work that you do in building God's temple, 
The work that you do in participating in God's call of discipling, of going to, of bringing in, of building up, that is part of a chain. That is part of a process that God has begun in the past in his redemption in Jesus that is continuing through the present and the now moments and the opportunities you have into God's eternal future. That which we do now will be participating. The spiritual truth that you build into the life of somebody is God's present working that prepares for Jesus' coming kingdom. That's the point. What you do does matter. What you do will outlive and outlast this present moment that we're in the middle of. I want us to keep that in mind as we consider this last relatively short message of Haggai. I didn't say it was going to be a short message of Bob. I said it was a, it's a short message of Haggai, only four verses. So turn, turn to Haggai chapter 2, the thing that changes everything. What is it about what God is doing that he invites us in that changes our whole take on it? The thing that changes everything, what is that? We've got four verses, Haggai chapter 2, beginning at verse 20. If you're using the, the church Bible there in front of you, you'll find us, I think it's page 792. 792, Haggai chapter 2, from verse 20. The word of the Lord came a second time. To Haggai, on the 24th day of the month, same, same as the previous message, speak to Zerubbabel, the governor. This is just for him, kind of. But we're meant to listen in. So this is maybe just for you. Speak to the governor, Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down, everyone by the sword of his brother. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Look what God is doing. God, God comes to Zerubbabel, and he gives him this little, little compacted picture and I want to suggest to you that what these verses, these final closing verses of the book of Haggai are for Zerubbabel, they are what the book of Revelation is for you. Can I give you the overview of the book of Revelation? How much time do we have? God wins. God does what he said. That's the book of Revelation. That's why you've got you've to know something about Ezekiel and Daniel and Isaiah before you go to Revelation because what God said he was going to do there, that's what he's done here. It's all wrapped up in completion and fulfillment and moving from the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ all the way into the eternity of God with his redeemed humanity. God has done it exactly what he said he would do. In the midst of today when you don't see it yet, and sometimes you wonder, could it be true in the midst of what I'm experiencing, in the midst of what's going on, will we ever get there? Will it ever be the case that all that is wrong will be made right? And the end of the story tells us, yes. Yes, it will. That's what the end of the book of Haggai does for Zerubbabel and for Joshua. And then some of Zechariah's messages, you can read those as well, that reinforce the same theme. 
that the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ is indeed coming. They can press on in the present because God's future will be realized. That's what's going on here. So, so a reminder then. Look what God is doing, Zerubbabel, in the midst of what I've laid before you to do. Look what God is doing. God is working his redemptive kingdom purposes in the midst of this broken world. God is doing it. God is working it. First of all, he comes to Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel the governor, busy in a backwater place. Zerubbabel could have been somebody. Zerubbabel is a prince of David. Zerubbabel is in the Davidic line. He's a descendant of the kings of Judah. But he's not a king. He's the governor. A governor seems like a big deal. Depends on what you're the governor of. Zerubbabel is the governor of a city of rubble. There is nothing there. He is there in the midst of that land beyond the river, but he's not even in charge of the province. He's in charge of Jerusalem which isn't much of anything, really. They've been told to go and to rebuild, specifically the temple. There'll have to be houses and homes and city and so forth to go with that. But the wall's a long way off still. He's not governor of much. He's in, in, in a backwater province far from the center of power. Maybe if he was like Daniel in Babylon, maybe if he was in the court there in Susa, then, then Zerubbabel could have some influence like Daniel had. But he's not there. He's here. And it would be easy for him to think, my life is going to be spent putting one block on top of another, and it's really not going to matter for much. And God says, Zerubbabel, I'm at work here. I'm at work in the midst of what you're doing. I am about to shake the heavens and the earth. Now that phrase is picked up on, that verse out of Haggai is picked up in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 12, 26 says, at that time, God's voice shook the earth, talking about Mount Sinai, talking about where God redeems his people out of Egypt, brings them to himself, brings them out of bondage into a new life and the land he's going to bring them to. And he forms this covenant with them. And yet, as he shakes that mountain and the whole earth seems to shake, and he has turned the world order upside down, seemingly. Egypt was everything. And Egypt has just been turned on its head. And God has brought his people out and made a covenant relationship with them. And yet that's not the end of it. Whatever happened from that, as Zerubbabel looks at it from his perspective now in the midst of a destroyed Jerusalem, and yet God says, at that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but the heavens as well. Everything in the whole created order and all the cosmos is going to come under realignment under God's will and purposes. Everything that's wrong will be made right. And the kingdoms of this world that have been set up and have had their opportunity and have had their day, those kingdoms are going to be ended and be turned into the kingdom of our God and of his Christ, as the book of Revelation says. He talks about this shaking of the heavens and the earth. Again, interpreted out of the book of Hebrews. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of the things that are shaken, the present world-ordered system, the things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence in awe. Where will you invest? In that which will be shaken and everything will come loose and fall off. Or in that which cannot be?
be shaken. In God's forever, will you invest your time, your energy, your resources, your, your testimony? Will you invest that in what cannot last or what will endure forever? That's the thing that changes everything. God has invited us to participate in what he is doing that will last forever. He says, I will destroy the strength of the kingdoms of of these nations. He's referring back to the not too long earlier, a few decades earlier, Daniel has these visions of the, the order of the kingdoms of the nations. And it begins with Babylon. There's, first of all, there's this statue. Babylon is the head of gold, and then, then, then the Persian Empire is the silver, and then after that is the Greek Empire, and after that comes the Roman Empire. And then on the, at the bottom, at the, at the end of that Roman Empire, there is this, this stone that is cut without hands. It falls from heaven and it strikes that statue at the base and the entire statue, the kingdoms of this nation and their power and their strength, they crumble and that stone which fell from heaven grows into a mighty mountain It is the kingdom of God. It repeats in another series of visions Daniel has later where first there was a series of beasts. There's one beast after another. There's a lion, there's a bear, there's a, there's a leopard, there's this exceedingly ter- terrible beast and these represent, again, they're interpreted for Daniel, because Daniel's like, what is this? And it's interpreted for him. And it's these kingdoms of the world. It's the kingdoms of the nation in a series, in order. And each will have their day. Each will have their era. And it will come to an end. And it will end and it will culminate in the kingdom of God on the earth. And that's what Jesus is talking about when he says the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Because the king is in their midst, even though they don't realize it yet. And he is going to establish, there, now we're back to the book of Revelation again. He is going to establish that kingdom. I will destroy the kingdoms of the nations. I'm not going to restore, destroy the peoples of the nations. God is busy in the work of saving them, of redeeming them. This is that time. This is our day to continue in his work of redemption. But these kingdoms, that which now is, will come to an end. Daniel's visions will be realized. Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You pray that way? We pray that way. And we live that way. And we work that way. We serve that way because that's the thing that changes everything. Look what God is doing. He he gives some more language about this that's meant to bring pictures into your head. He talks about the chariots and the riders, the horses and the riders, each one destroyed by the sword of his brother. What's that all about? He's Again, he's pulling some images out of Israel's history. Zerubbabel would know about these things, and these would encourage when they were helpless, when they could not do for themselves, look what God did for them in the past. The chariots and the horses. They brought into this land, and yet there are Canaanites in the land. The Canaanites have chariots, and Israel does not, because Israel is supposed to rely not on horses and chariots, but in the power of the Lord their God. Some trust in chariots, some in horses. We will trust in the Lord our God. And so there, there is this one particular battle, I think it's around, around um, Judges chapter 4 and 5, where where. 
where Barak and Deborah, they're, they're, they're gather Israel together and the chariots, the huge army comes and they come across to Jezreel Valley in that fertile level valley, which is a great place for a war. It's a great place for chariots to run over everybody. All of a sudden there's a huge rainstorm and the valley floor turns to mud and all those chariots are suddenly worthless and stuck and trapped and destroyed. Look what God does. God fights with rain. Look what God does. And the chariots and the riders. What about the horses and the riders? That comes out of Exodus 15, which comes right after Exodus 14. And Exodus 14 is that time in Israel's history when God has brought them out of Egypt. And they have come to the Red Sea. And they're trapped by the Red Sea. They cannot cross. And yet Pharaoh's army is coming up behind them. And God himself puts his pillar of fire between them and the Egyptians all night long. And the next day, the next day, the sea parts in front of them and they go across on dry land and the Egyptians are watching this and the Pharaoh says, what? And he says, well, all right then. Let's go after them. And they do. And you know what happens? The waters come back in, whams, and and they're, they're inundated, they're overwhelmed, they're crushed by the waters roaring back in upon them. So Israel is delivered through the certain death of the Red Sea into a new life of freedom to serve, live with, and worship God on the other side. And they sing a song. Because that's what you do when God has rescued you. The psalmist says, let the redeemed say so. And they do. And they sing this song in Exodus 15. And one of them, my favorite lines, I guess the only line I really remember out of it is this one. We will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider are thrown into the sea. And he's talking about Pharaoh's horses, Pharaoh's riders, Pharaoh's army cast into the sea and up and down and all around. Spin cycle. <laughs> and God has rescued his people. Look what God did. They were helpless. Look what God did for them. Won by the sword of his brother. How does that happen? Think about Gideon and the Midianites. God has got, there's this huge, huge army of Midianites that's coming against, against the, the people of Israel. There they are, vulnerable in the land. And so this big army led by the mighty warrior, I'm being a little cynical here, Gideon is going to, is going to stand against them. He is God's right, he is God's strong arm, right? So at first they have like 10,000 people, and God says, that's way too many. You guys are going to claim some credit for this. So he sends most of them home, and he leaves them with 300. Now we're talking 300 elite special forces armed to the teeth, going in hot, right? No. Going in hot means they're carrying torches. And along with the torches, they've got pitchers. They are ready for this battle with their torches and their pitchers. And they smash the pitchers and make a lot of noise. And they've got all these torches. They're waving frantically in the dark. And the Midianites are so terrified by the sight of waving torches in the dark that they panic and they think they're being invaded and they think they're being overrun and they are going after each other in the dark with their swords. Same thing happens again. Years later, with King Jehoshaphat, there's an army coming out from the east, from Edom, and it's made up of Moabites and Ammonites as well. These other large nations out there and they're coming in and their intention is to take Jerusalem and to, and to kill Jehoshaphat and replace him with somebody they want on the throne. And Jehoshaphat cannot stand against this horde that is coming against him. And, he, and they lay it out in prayer before the Lord. And I don't know if you've ever prayed this way, but they say, Lord, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Our eyes are on you. And God says, well... 
This is what we're going to do then. This is the battle plan. You know that wonderful choir you have? Put them out front of the army. I'm sorry, Evan, this is going to make it harder to get people into the choir. I realize that. <laughs> put, put the choir out front. Put the band out front. They're the ones that are going to lead this charge. And you go out against them tomorrow and see how the Lord is going to fight for you. And so they go marching out from Jerusalem singing, Praise ye the Lord, his mercy endures forever and ever. And they go out and they're singing. And they get to the edge of the escarpment where they're looking down over where Engedi is. And, the, and there's a there's some trails and there's a pretty sharp drop off down toward the Dead Sea and there's this mass of armies below them there and they're astounded that the armies have begun to turn on one another and they're fighting one another and they destroy one another and it takes them three days they go down and they pick over the stuff that was left behind and it takes them three whole days to haul all that stuff away look what God has done for them now I, I tell you all that because Well, because God reminded Zerubbabel of all that. He says, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth. Oh, God, you're speaking in vague generalities now. I'm going to overthrow the throne of the kingdoms. Okay, yeah, but when, 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 God, do you do things like that? I'm going to overthrow the chariots and the riders, and the horses and the riders will go down under the water. And every one by the sword of his brother, Gideon and Midian, Jehoshaphat and Moab, just like I've done before. That's why you read your Bible. That's why you, 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 you need to know some history about what God has done. Because what God has done is showing you who God is and what God will do. What he'll do then, but very importantly relates to that, is what God is doing now. Because God hasn't changed. His purposes hasn't changed. And he continues to work his redemptive purposes toward eternity and his kingdom by his power. It is not by our might. It is not by our power. It is by his spirit, says the Lord. And that's what he has invited us right into the middle middle of. I'm going to destroy these kingdoms. I'm going to do my thing. So in the midst of this, In the midst of this, let people around us hear that kind of confidence in the future come from us. There's a lot of stuff that's going on around. And yet in the midst of that, let let our hope of God's future leak out. Politics today. People talk a lot about politics and what's going on. You know, one, one standard answer I like to give to try to avoid a political argument, if I'm trying to avoid the political argument, is, you know, what we need is a good king. But you know, even that gets me in trouble today because don't you know that our president is acting as if he was a king and we're not supposed to have a king? No, no, no. I said what we need is a good king. The only problem with that is there's only one. There is only, that's that's the bad news. There's only one good king. And we're not going to have a good king until we have that one good king. But the good news is the one good king is coming. That's what my Bible says. That's what my hope is. It isn't gonna, it isn't, things are not going to be as they ought to be until the king comes. The good news is he is coming. That's where my confidence really is. We're going to try to hold this together the best we can and, and, and try to live out as God's people his principles in the midst of the, the societal context we find ourselves in. But our hope is in the Lord and in his future ultimately. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. That ought to be our prayer that other people hear us pray. 
Keep a long-range perspective in the midst of short-term troubles. Now, I don't want to, I don't want to downplay some of the things that some of you are going through right now by saying short-term troubles. Because some of your short-term troubles will stretch into years and decades and multiple decades. And that's a long time, it seems like it, until we've been there 10,000 years bright shining as the sun, and have no less days to sing his praise than when we first begun. The kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ is coming. And that'll be forever. And that will will put into perspective these short-term troubles where God, whether we see it or not, where God has been working his work toward that coming kingdom. We need to keep that perspective. It's like labor pains versus the life that follows. If I can piggyback on that announcement again, right? There's some, there's some trouble that comes, but there is the joy of life that will follow. And so Psalm 30 verse 5 says, Weeping may linger for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Psalm 126 and verse 6 takes that same idea and puts it into discipling terms, puts it into temple-building terms for us. It says, "We, the, the one who goes out weeping at a cost, bearing seed for sowing, shall no doubt come home again with shouts of rejoicing, bringing their sheaves, bringing an abundant harvest with them. It'll cost us something. It'll be hard. It'll hurt at times in the midst. And yet it will be for great joy that is coming. That's the thing that changes everything. God's intentions are real and personal. Even though the present circumstances don't look like it, God will do what he has said. He will bring things to his end. And in bringing things to his end, God has chosen to include you and what he would have you do toward those ends in his culmination of history in the kingdom of his son. Do you believe that? That God is, God's, God's purposes, God's plans are real and personal and he's going to do them. And basically, he has chosen that he's going to work those plans into reality. He's going to work them to their consummate end, including what you do and how you participate in it. That's what he's chosen to do. It's not merely look at what God is doing, but look who God is working through. That's amazing, that's surprising, that's wonderful. God will work his redemption and his transformation through you and I. We're the ones he's chosen to do it. You see that in the end here of of these closing words to Zerubbabel. On that day, on this day, in the completion of everything, in the purposes of God, wrapping up in completion, he says, on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, I will take you. Now that that first phrase, he says three phrases, and I love them. I love the ring of it. I will take you. I will make you, for I have chosen you. Oh, I hope that lingers with you after we leave here today. I will take you. I will make you. We're not done yet, because I have chosen you. 
That part of it's fixed. That part of it is certain. That part of it is his promise and guarantee. I will take you, Zerubbabel, my servant. You were the son of Shealtiel. That could be a big deal, Prince of David and all that. Well, it doesn't get him much in present Jerusalem. It doesn't even get him a cup of coffee, really. But he's the, he's the son of Shealtiel. He's in the Davidic line. But I will take you. I will take you. You belong to me. Zerubbabel, weird a name as you have, you are mine. Some of you, as odd as you are, you belong to him. He has said, I will take you. All right? Grab hold of that just for a minute. The belonging that comes with, I will take you. He has made you his own. He has made you his child. And not only that, you're not only received as his own, accepted in God's beloved son, but you are recognized as the servant, as the Lord, as the agent and operator of God himself. I will take you. You son of Shealtiel, that is nothing. You are the servant of the Lord. Now, this is the privilege. This is the standing that, that, that God gave all of his people Israel in Isaiah 43. I have chosen you as my servant out of all the nations of the earth. And he narrows that down. He takes that privilege of Israel to make known the true and living God to all the peoples of the earth and who do such a a poor job of that. He, He wraps them together in the identity of his own son, the servant of the Lord, Isaiah 53. And then he calls us into the order of his servant. God has made us his own servants. God has called us to participate in that which he is doing. In addition to that, he said, not only do I, I will take you as my own and as my servant, but I will make you Zerubbabel. I will make you a signet. Here we see Zerubbabel's future elevation. Zerubbabel's elevation from servant to signet. What does that mean? We don't really have signet rings anymore. The, the, the signet ring was a ring that could be used to stamp a clay seal on the seal of a letter that authenticated who it was from because you had to have the king's finger to have the king's ring and the king's seal. And so the king would sometimes give his signet to his trusted official. Now, Zerubbabel didn't have one of those from the king of Persia because Zerubbabel could not make a declaration in the name of the king of Persia. When there's all this opposition going on, they have these letters that are going back and forth to the king, and the king sorts it out. Zerubbabel doesn't have that authority, but he has it from God. He's on God's mission here, and he's doing this under God's orders and under God's authority. And so are you. You know, a parallel in the New Testament is in the prodigal son. The prodigal comes back, and he... He deserves nothing. And yet the father runs out to meet him, right? After he has lost everything of his own inheritance, the father runs to meet him on the road, and there he puts sandals on his feet, and he puts his own robe, a robe of honor. The son's coming back to be a servant hired in the household. At least he'll get a decent meal and a decent bed. But but, but, But the father says, no, no, he puts his own robe upon him. He restores honor to him. And then you know what he does? He takes his ring and he puts his ring on his son's finger. And that ring is the signet. That ring is the authority. That ring is, this is not my child. This is not a member of my house merely. This is my son who will act in my stead. 
in my place. He will put the stamp of the ring on a document. He could sign his name on the deed. That, the one who has squandered all that I gave him, I put him in charge of everything. Doesn't that seem weird? I don't know. We ought to see a little track record here first, right? That's what God has done with you. You and I and Adam lost everything, and now God has given it all back. He has given us all the authority as the name of Jesus himself. He says, you ask whatever you will in my name, and the Father will give it to you. That's the authority that we have. He says, all authority has been given to me under heaven and earth. Therefore, going, make disciples, baptizing, bringing them in, and teaching them, building them up, and following me based on the authority that he has that he has extended to us in his name. That's what we operate out of. Just like he tells Zerubbabel, I will, I will make you a signet. God's elevating him from remnant to reigning with Jesus. Similarly, the church rightly today is on the fringes of society. We are not at the center of the power. And whenever we are, we spoil things. We certainly spoil the church. Because we rely on the levers of power of the kingdoms of this nation, of these nations, rather than on relying on the spirit of the living God. And so it's rightly that we're on the fringes of things. There we'll rely on the God, uh, on the power of God himself, and there God will use us to accomplish his purpose toward his not yet kingdom. We will be in the kingdom, and Jesus will be in the center, and we will be with him. Zerubbabel, the governor, appointed by a Gentile king. If he was in Babylon or Susa, he could have been somebody. Where he is, seemingly a nobody. And yet, where does God put him? God puts him in Matthew 1, right in the middle of the chain to Messiah. He will be one of the grandfathers of Jesus himself, according to the line in Matthew. God delights to use the seemingly little and insignificant. What you do doesn't seem significant, perhaps. You wonder if would what you do or what you could do, would it even matter? Working in the nursery, nobody will notice. Everybody hopes the light, the numbers don't even go off, right? Would anybody know? You're a mom at home looking after a household of kids, and nobody seems to know how hard you work at that. You visit seniors, neighbors, those who are sick, Maybe in church you work back there at the audiovisual desk and you hope nobody notices you. Because the only time people turn around to the audio-video desk, the sound desk in the back, is when there's a large squeal in the room or the screen goes blank, right? And after an uncomfortable pause, everybody turns around and everybody notices just when you want nobody to know you're there. That's the only time. Seemingly insignificant job, and yet so little would happen well without that kind of behind-the-scenes, often unseen and unrecognized serving. Faithful at work, honoring the Lord in secular assignments as a faithful witness in how you work, does anyone notice? Yes, your faithful working 
in faith, trusting your Lord, being known for your faithfulness in work can provide an opportunity for you to share your faith with somebody there. Don't worry, troubles will come. And what if when troubles come, just like people around Lot knew that Abraham was the go-to guy, when troubles come, what if they know that you're the one that could offer some help, could offer some hope? in the midst of it all, because you've earned that as you've worked right along them. What if you are a bearer of God's signet ring, that you have the authority to act in the king's name, and God has given you that authority in his kingdom in the name of Jesus? He says, I will take you, and I will make you. Because God is not merely in a saving, redeeming work. God is in a life-changing, transforming work. And that is the work also that he's called us into, not only to evangelize, but to build up and to life change. I will take you and I will make you. And he does that because he says, I have chosen you. The fact that you were born again Saved, transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son of His love means, then the words of Gospel of John, you are born of God. God has chosen you. God has made you His own. You have been made a child of God. You've been born again. You have been given God's eternal life. You can never perish. In the words of Haggai, God has taken you His own. He has rescued you out of captivity, even as surely as He rescued Israel from Egypt, as He rescued Zerubbabel and Joshua and company from Babylon. But God has saved you, rescued you, in order to make you. He's not only in that life-saving business, he is in a life-changing, a transforming business. One of the things I love about our church's partnership with Freedom House is you see in a compacted space of time, you see life change in the lives of these men who had lost so much, and yet look what God builds into them in terms of hope and character and a new direction in following Jesus. God has saved you in order to make you. Saved you from sin in order to make you his servant so that he might make you his signet in the kingdom of his son. God intends to give us authority, responsibility in the future coming kingdom. We have all kinds of mess in our past, but because of God's taking us, because of God's making us, he is fitting us for his purposes in eternity for us. Now, how does he do that? What if God's making you? What if God's making you is being accomplished as he uses you in his saving and making of others? Wouldn't it seem to reason that if he is forming us more and more into the image and likeness of his son, that he would do that by walking us through and into and to participate in the same kinds of things that he did through his son and that his son now does in the world through us? To the extent, then, that we participate in the building up of God's house, to the extent that we participate in the building up of God's house and the going to and the bringing in and the building up of others, there is where God is building us for his eternal purposes for us. Our present discipleship is God's workshop for his eternal purposes for us. That's the thing 
this thing, the thing that is before you today, is the thing that changes everything forever for somebody else and also thereby for you. That's the thing. God uses what he is doing through us. He uses that to make us. Let's just pause right there. That God, that God, by building his house through you, that's where God is building you. Let's pray. Father, would you do that? Would you give us the privilege, not only being your own, but being your servant? being used by you in your purposes, purposes that will far outlast the present, that will continue into eternity. Lord, we long for that day. We look forward to being in it. Father, we want to be used there in all the ways that you would fit us for your service. So, Father, do that in the ways that you would use us right now today, in the lives of one another, in the lives of others. Father, would you take that which we have? Would you receive it and use it? Lord, would, would you receive from this offering? Would you receive the offer even of our own lives? Would you receive our prayers and our testimonies in recognition of what you do by your spirit in us and through us? Father, we yield again ourselves to you. We are reminded and stirred by your words to Zerubbabel. Lord, would you do the same with us? Not merely for us. Father, for, the, for the, your purposes and those whom you would send us to, but most of all, Lord, that Jesus would be glorified in the presence of, in the face of those all around us because that's what he, he is worthy of. Father, we long for that day when we can say joy to the world, the Lord is come. Father, there are people today. Lord, would you use us to get them ready for that day? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.